What's always been clear to me is that watching film and making them as well gives me a feeling that I never really have found elsewhere. And watching films as I was getting older and understanding it, it was very clear to me. This is what I really, really want to do. <laughs> and this is the feeling. This is the feeling I want to recreate. Hello, welcome to This Is My Cinema, the show from the British Independent Film Awards that invites you to take a seat on the front row for a cinematic journey with some of Britain's finest filmmaking talents. I'm Rihanna Dillon. And I'm Michael Leader. And together we're talking to some very special guests about the cinema-going experiences that have directed the course of their lives. If you're new to the show, we've spoken to Harris Dickinson, Morvith Clark, Reggie Yates, and loads more. And now that our favourite dream palaces are back to being a reality, we wanted to get together with some more guests to talk about their favourite cinemas, their favourite films... And their favourite snacks. All the big questions, Michael. Yep, for cinephiles like us, this is like our question time. So, Rihanna, putting you under the spotlight for a second, what's one of your top cinema-going memories? I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily one of the best cinema memories, but one of the funniest is going to see The Others in the Brighton Odeon with my best friend from school. I think we must have been about 12. And um, and just crying on the back row with sheer terror because that's how frightened <laughs> for horror films I was. And it was specifically the moment that I'm sure you all know where the little girl is turned around to be revealed as a very old woman. And I don't know why that moment just scared me and my friends so much. We were almost hysterically crying and also laughing you know when you like amp each other up and um we very nearly got kicked out we had to, to say that we would behave ourselves so <laughs> be quiet <laughs> of course in the years since then rihanna you've become like a hardened film critic so can you take your horror now i really really can't every time i go to see a horror film i have to take like a scarf with me or something to hide behind and i always have to stick my fingers in my ears i saw a film recently at the cinema and it took me straight back to being at the others because i was so frightened and almost paralyzed with fear and i was just shoving like my knuckles in my ears and my fingers over my eyes just so i couldn't experience anymore and i was like I don't feel like this is the point of going to the cinema. I think I'm missing, I think I'm missing something here. But that's, yeah, I mean, that's a moment that has always stayed with me of probably where my fear of horror began. But I've, I've got slightly better over mm -hmm. the years. I think horror is one of the only genres where maybe covering your eyes and not watching some of the film shows you're responding in the right way. <laughs> exactly. Perfect audience, right? Yeah. Well, Rihanna, thankfully you're not scared about talking with people. As this is what we do on this podcast, talking about cinema-going experiences. Michael. Gosh, I'm so good at those, aren't I? Our guest <laughs> this week is a rising star filmmaker. He's excelled in short films. He's excelled on TV with series like Top Boy. Now he's made his first feature film, Surge. Yes, this is Anil Carrier, who I know his work from Riz Ahmed's The Long Goodbye, which he directed, and also Kano's Teardrops. So both really quite political, about police brutality. This is a guy who really has got like his finger on the pulse of what is going on in our country, I think. So a really exciting talent. So here he is, Anil Carrier. 
And Neil, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is my cinema. I'm really excited to talk to you. I've watched your film surge and I feel like there are so many questions I have for you. But first of all, you know, this is all about our favourite cinemas, going to the cinema. Can you remember like some of the films that you saw from quite a young age in cinemas? Yeah, I mean, not very usefully for an interview like this. I have an atrocious memory, but I do have a few, <laughs> a few kind of experiences that shine through. I grew up in Ipswich, which is a fairly um, bog-standard British town, I suppose. It's not like it has a multitude of cinemas <laughs> to choose from. There was a huge Odeon where we grew up that I think was opened when I was around eight years old, something like that. And it was architecturally quite maverick. It tried to make itself look like a ship and um, <laughs> albeit quite a weird grey unship shaped like ship it was ship themed anyway it had kind of porthole type <laughs> windows and stuff and it's kind of sad because I can't remember when I'd be guessing but at some point in my later adolescence it shut down and it's been there empty rusting basically for the past like 15 or like 20 years you can still see the faded listings from um Oh, when, wow. for, and I th I'm pretty sure Nutty Professor 2 is. What <laughs> um, <laughs> a way to go out. Yeah, exactly. What a legacy. Yeah, go out on a high. And <laughs> I think the first film I saw there, it was either my granddad, who's not around anymore, took me to see Hook there. <laughs> oh, brilliant. And I mean, it wasn't like I had a childhood that was steeped in like film or the arts or anything like that I was I was I didn't really have that kind of upbringing I remember it being quite surreal really I didn't really understand the concept of like pick and mix either until I went to the cinema or the cost of pick and mix and um <laughs> well yeah and so I think probably the first film I saw at the cinema was Hook but I, I can't mm -hmm. really remember the chronology of because I know I saw either shortly before or shortly afterwards Robin Hood Prince of Thieves with my mum and my brother I think but one of my standout Memories of that cinema is my friend's 11th or 10th birthday party where we went to see Home Alone 2 and then to Pizza Hut. And I remember that being an excellent, excellent day. I'm a, <laughs> quite a huge fan of Home Alone 2. Um, <laughs> arguably, I like it more than Home Alone. I don't know if that's a controversial take or not, but I'll, I'll take right, it. Right, yeah. <laughs> I just like the kind of urban element of it. So those are some standout memories. You've sketched out such a 90s, early 90s childhood there. Pizza Hut, Hook, yeah. Home Alone 2. <laughs> That's like Prince of Thieves. They're the, like the big films of the early 90s. I love the idea of a naval slash nautical cinema and going and seeing Hook there. Must have been quite mm -hmm. magical. Right, yeah. I mean, I can't stress enough how, <laughs> even, though, even though there was a nautical ambition about the whole place, it didn't really succeed. Uh, especially once you're inside the auditorium, the ship theme was very much background. <laughs> so that's the age when you're being taken by family members or it's like a birthday party and you're going along with friends en masse. When you're a teenager, what sort of films were you getting into then when you're developing your own taste and sense of what you like? Whew, that's a good question. Um, it's a terrible answer. I think I started watching a lot of television Mm -hmm. There was a very small independent slash art house film theatre in Ipswich, but I wasn't massively aware of it. And I think it was something that just proper adults went to. I mean, it wasn't something I discovered anyway. Yeah, so that started with things like watching the Brookside Omnibus with my dad <laughs> and then classic BBC primetime stuff like 
Jimmy McGovern series back in the day or those Paul Abbott ones like clocking off for the early days of Shameless or something like that. So I became quite enamoured with those TV dramas. I was part of that box set era when the first HBO shows started, you know, and DVDs were coming out, box sets became a thing. I asked for the first series of Six Feet Under, I think, for Christmas or something, and then tore through the rest of those series and then discovered The Sopranos and things like that. And then it was only, I think, once I moved to London that I really discovered the wonder of cinema again, and particularly like art house film or foreign films and stuff like mm -hmm. that. I think it just took me a while, really. It's funny, we, me and my mates were actually making terrible, absurd, surreal films in our weekends when we were 12, 13 onwards, and that's what we did. But there was a real disconnect between the fun we were having making those films and the idea of film as a bigger world, and let alone yeah. something you could actually go into. That was just too abstract. So how did you make that leap from making those films, you know, just messing around with your mates, to being like, oh, actually, this could be my career? Oh, it took me ages. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, such a long time. I think I just had some really nagging, unformed sense that I wanted to make stuff, but I really, really didn't understand what that might be. And I was also quite interested, this paints me as a more academic, bookish kid than I was, but because I was quite useless in some ways at school, but I was quite interested in politics. I found it quite interesting the ideas of how Westminster worked and how politics worked and how like governance worked and I think I wanted to study politics actually but I didn't get the grades for that course but I figured out oh maybe I'll go into journalism because that seems really interesting. Our school actually had a really weird really tiny VHS library and it would have just a really obscure arbitrary selection of recorded VHSs from like Terms of Endearment, which was one of my mum's favourites, to the John Major years. <laughs> All three episodes by Michael Crick. Mm -hmm. Miss Paint is such a strange little child. But I remember getting the Major years <laughs> out and um, watching it and found it quite thrilling, the idea of like how all that worked. Anyway, decided to study it rather. I was lucky enough when I came out of university to be offered a job at Sky News doing night shifts, working on the morning show. Obviously very, very low down the rung of <laughs> importance working from 11pm till 11am and I guess by that point I was living in London I was in my early 20s and I was starting to go to the cinema and starting to have more of a sense of the arts and Sky News wasn't really doing it for me it was not really what I'd imagined journalism to be like and I was also just dying from doing the night shifts and they kind of had no life so one day I just I realised I had to quit and just started coasting for a while doing early 20s kind of London jobs I got a job shucking oysters at Harvey Nichols' Oyster Bar. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, uh, which sounds really high-end and sophisticated, but it was ultimately just paying you the same as <laughs> if you worked at Garfunkel's or something. And actually, like, that was a really good move because it just gave me a life again. And then someone showed me an advert in a paper for the NFTS and for this new course that wasn't really a film, a directing course per se. It was all about producing and directing specifically for television and even more specifically for studio entertainment. So this was like a very long way from film directing. But it kind of interested me. And like I said, this nagging urge I had to do some creative was quite unformed. And I thought 
oh, well, if they're advertising this course, they must be desperate for people to apply to it because they don't need to advertise. I knew enough to know that they don't need to advertise the directing courses or cinematography. They're like inundated with applicants. So I applied and long story short, got a place there and was lucky enough to get a scholarship to pay for that and ended up at the NFTS doing this very specific course that teaches you to, yeah, direct from the gallery. Mm. Like whether it's live music shows or the one show type thing or an X Factor, all that kind of stuff, really. And I guess over the two years I spent there, I had an amazing time, but did realise that that wasn't really what I wanted to do. But because I was in the NFTS, which is quite a small place, really, I met directing students, I met all the different disciplines for the first time, probably. You know, most people were probably coming to that school understanding how film worked and how crews broke down and stuff. I fluked my way in there and figured it out once I was in there, so I met directors, met cinematographers, met editors, understood how it all worked. Even if you are on a, on a specific course, it's an amazing place where you can go to master classes. Directors mm. would come in in the evenings and show their films and talk about them. So I sort of became really enamored with that side of things. And then I remember that it also had an amazing DVD library uh. and VHS library. So A, they were showing probably two films every week in their, in their screening room, often with Q&As. And B, they had this library and I'd get out loads of different films and I sort of discovered what cinema was mm. quite late on, really. That's really reassuring because, you know, now more than ever, there's this pressure to be fully formed at age 12. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Making films, knowing what you want to do. You're a TikTok superstar. Yeah. So knowing that that's, that long process is really good. Can you take us on that journey with the films and filmmakers that you were discovering when you came to London, going through the National Film and Television School, the DVD library, the masterclasses, who were the films and filmmakers that showed you the way or showed you this is what you wanted to do? Mm. Well, I mean, I won't be able to list hundreds, but I know that people like Sidney Lumet, I think I, I came across Network, for instance, and that kind of blew my mind. Ended up going backwards and watching like 12 Angry Men and Dog Day Afternoon, which became like a real film favourite of mine. I remember Claire Denise films being shown. I found really quite intoxicating. Oh, there was an amazing tutor at the NFTS. He was doing a lecture or seminar on Close Up by Abbas Kiristami. And he was going really deep. And that for me was a bit of a sort of like epiphany moment because I was sat there and he was talking in such like poetic, deep terms about it. I mean, I probably didn't understand it at all but I just found it like really exciting and got that film out then and then watched more Abbas Kiristami films I also have a really good friend who I'd met at film school who's Iranian and she told me about Jafar Panahi and I was watching his films as mm -hmm. well so these are the names I really remember but then there was also more mainstream names like Paul Greengrass would come to the school and show his films and there was something really visceral and immediate about those films. And I kind of found it exciting that those were looking for big audiences, but they were still using a sort of language of naturalism and realism and things like that. That's really interesting because watching Surge, that vibe really came through of that naturalism, that immediacy. So did you feel like you were sort of through osmosis picking up these elements from these directors that you admired? Yeah, I mean, I'd be very wary of saying I'm channeling all these great stuff. <laughs> but I suppose I always found those films that were really, really grounded in a very visceral reality that I kind of recognised or could get my head around. I found that quite exciting. But I also found the poetry and like lyricism of those different kinds of films. And so 
the idea of trying to combine those things and weave them together in some way was definitely quite interesting to me. I think things like the Beat That My Heart Skip and mm -hmm. Profit and things were probably coming out then as well and would have been shown at the school and those mm -hmm. kind of films were like blowing my mind in terms of this kind of very tactile groundedness, I suppose, but mixed with some sort of magic that he infused with them that seemed to transcend real life, but somehow be within it still. That was really exciting. I should, <laughs> in case you haven't realised by now, I'm, unfortunately I'm not a cinephile in a knowledge sense. I'm not that guy with the kind of encyclopedic. It's quite refreshing, to be honest, because right. I do find sometimes find that quite exhausting. So it's actually really nice. Because I was kind of winging it in a massive way, I didn't come to film school with, with any kind of knowledge like that. I was clutching it in this kind of quite hodgepodge way while mm. I was there. And it's always been a bit like that. And I remember being really... It's quite good to just say that out loud on this like cinema podcast because it's probably <laughs> quite helpful. It's always been quite kind of disparate and patchy. Yeah. But what's always been clear to me is that film gives me a feeling, watching film and making them as well, gives me a feeling that I never really have found elsewhere. And so watching films, as I was getting older and understanding it, it was very clear to me, this is what I really, really want to do. Mm. <laughs> and this is the feeling. This is the feeling I want to recreate. But my breadth of knowledge has never been... I could never wax lyrical on a particular director for the, for that long without running out of knowledge, basically. But yeah, I was, I was just taking in a real range of film, I suppose. That's the magic thing about inspiration, right? So even within this, I mean, this is a bit absurd of me, but you said that you respond to the urban setting of Home Alone 2 Lost in New York. That's not a massive jump between that and Dog Day Afternoon, a great New York movie mm -hmm. that has a real sense of the texture of the city, even though it's mostly set in one location and just on the street outside, mm, mm, mm. to then the way that I think you capture London so well in films, but also central to Top Boy, mm. the idea of like the location informing the action, informing the characters and being such an important part of that. So inspiration, what you watch, you still drink it up, even if you've not watched, you know, this massive pile of DVDs. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. And, you know, I'm always someone who's been like quite acutely sensitive to the sort of like energies of places when I came to London from a smaller town it was a nuts place to come to and yeah. and I was like fascinated and probably made me a bit anxious but it also was like thrilling that kind of emotional reaction to a place and the kind of energy of a place has always been interesting to me and definitely I think a lot of my work has been about trying to harness that and what it does to a character, yeah. And so you went out to LA for a while, right? I worked at BAFTA years ago and you were like one of the first big BAFTA scholars that went out to USC. What was it like drinking in the energy of California? Oh, was, that was great, yeah. I mean, the USC experience didn't really work out for me. <laughs> I guess made a misstep. I, um, I was on my way back from a concert in London and I came off my bike and broke my collarbone and shoulder and was that's really bad news basically so I was basically like laid up for a long time and I just made my first short film Beat mm. and even though I'd been to the NFTS I started thinking maybe what I need because Beat was a big moment for me making my first short before that I'd been making quite kind of patchy canvas of like content and jobby kind of things so that was quite a release making Beat because it's like oh yes this is what finding your voice feels like and this feels like I'm channeling whatever is kind of inside me into films which is what I wanted to do and I thought oh maybe I should do film properly and I think there was also just a sort of restless part of me that fancied some big change I basically couldn't move for about two months so I started researching different film schools and I had nothing better to do than apply to them really and so I went about my applications over those two months and got some 
offers, including USC, which is obviously in many ways a very, very impressive film school. And then I thought, oh, that's exciting, you know, and it would be a complete change, and I'd learn about film properly, and I'd learn about the craft, and I could kind of build on what I've done with my shorts and take it in that direction. And obviously they're insanely expensive there, so I was lucky enough to get the fees paid by BAFTA LA, and it was a kind of magical experience going to LA for a while, but quite quickly realised that that film school had been a misstep and actually mm -hmm. wasn't really for me because it's a mm -hmm. very particular kind of film school as well, where it's proudly and there's no and this isn't a bad thing at all. But it's proudly a commercial kind of filmmaking space, and it's proudly a kind of studio focused f film school, I think. And I think I was a bit wowed by things and didn't really interrogate whether that was the right space for me. As such as the nature of life, I was kind of getting, albeit small, asked about a couple of work opportunities back in the UK. And it felt increasingly just like the wrong move. And so I wasn't there very long. But I loved just the opportunity to go to a completely different... And I remember I got offered a place somewhere in New York as well. And I thought, you know what, we're really craving like a totally different experience. And LA is that. And mm. it's a really fascinating complicated strange yeah. place but particularly after coming from London and I just loved that and even though the I wasn't at the film school very long kind of few months in the end I hung around and filmed a lot of stuff because mm -hmm. that was when I was more proactive in the self-shooting approach and yeah f filmed loads and loads of stuff and drove around it and shot a lot of stuff with a view to making little things they never really got made I just kind of kept shooting stuff and it's on some hard drive somewhere it's probably like awful <laughs> truly awful but that was an amazing experience and again I think I am like fascinated by the kind of different the moods and energies of places yeah I wanted to ask about in Surge from the very beginning I felt so anxious because of the sound design of the film. It's incredible and it just gets right into your bones. So I was wondering about the best sound design that you've ever heard in a cinema where it almost overtook the visuals. Well, I know that You Were Never Really Here was one of the reasons I wanted to approach Paul Davies about doing the sound for Serge because he did the sound and that. And that was a very big sound design ex experience mm. for me at the cinema. And I also in just instinctively thought of Sicario, actually, mm -hmm. when you asked me that question. I remember being in the cinema and being pretty wowed by that sound. I mean, it, it was about the music as well, but I feel like the music and the world sound was quite well woven in that and to really good effect. So, yeah, I guess those two kind of jumped out. The question that we also begin asking everybody, have you got a standout moment where you saw a film with... I don't know, necessarily a crowd of people or by yourself, where you were just really, really glad that you saw that moment in a cinema. Yeah, I'm not sure how cool of me this is, because it's quite a divisive film. And I think as time goes on, it gets a bit more of a dodgy rap. But I saw Tree of Life twice at the cinema. <laughs> oh my and, God. <laughs> um, it really did just blow my mind. I think I was, you know, maybe in a particularly emotionally open space. And both times there were people leaving on a fairly regular basis over the, <laughs> over the course of the first hour or so, or two. But you know what that film's like and that mad existence montage in the mm -hmm. middle and stuff. And even if you, well, I was about to say, even if you despise it, it takes you on a journey. But it, if, if you despise it, it probably doesn't take you on a journey. But anyway, it took me on a real journey and I just really went with it. If you were going to show a film in which cinema you would show it, if you were putting on a screening... Anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world. There are a lot of films that I saw growing up which were kind of big deal to me. 
for instance, Heat and Taxi Driver and Dog Day Afternoon things, where I might have seen that at the cinema, but I didn't when it came out. But I've been lucky enough to see them when the BFI South Bank has played them all, mm -hmm. and I've really enjoyed that. I think I might actually like to watch, because it's a favourite film of mine, but I've never seen it in the cinema, Taste of Cherry, the Kiristami film. Obviously, I'm a quieter experience than some of those ones I mentioned, but I think I'd really enjoy that. And in terms of where, I'm afraid I don't have a particularly romantic connection with <laughs> the Ipswich ship, <laughs> so I'm not going to watch it there, especially as it's now become a huge evangelical super church. <laughs> right. But I love the Rio because it was a local cinema for a long time. But I think I mainly just love like NFT1 at BFI Southbank, so mm. I'd probably just watch it there. <laughs> I know that's not very global-minded of me, but... I love it there. I really like it there, and it's an amazing screen, an amazing place. I'm always excited to see anything there, really. I love NFT1. Do you have a preferred place to sit there? Because it's quite a big cinema. Front row? You're a front row type? I kind of can be a front row type. I'd rather sit the front row than the back row. I have a little bit of an OCD trait in that I quite like to sit on the edge of a row. <laughs> I feel a lot more <laughs> at ease. So there's a big bank in the middle, isn't there? And then mm -hmm. two side banks there. So mm -hmm. I think let's go for the end of the middle bank, row F. <laughs> <laughs> well, my preferred row in an FT1 is E, so I'll be right in front of you. I hope you don't mind. Right, OK. So I'll see, I'll see I you can, there. I can yeah. try and shuffle down a little bit. <laughs> you, yeah, OK. If there's someone in front of me, right in front of me, I might have to reconsider, but yeah. But you can come. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, was no I, was, I was hoping we'd be able to. <laughs> Cheers. So let's just recap that. So that's Taste of Cherry, the Abbas Kiristami film in the NFT one at BFI South Bank. The important question, though, that we save till last is what is your ultimate cinema snack? You mentioned pick and mix way back when in Ipswich, but is that still what you'd go for now? No, I don't think I've bought pick and mix in a long, long time. I don't have much of a sweet tooth. I 100% will go for salted popcorn. Mm. Sometimes, depending on my mood, I'll ask them for this much. I'm gesturing maybe two inches of sweet at the bottom as a little pudding. Sweetener. <laughs> yeah. Um, but mainly I'd just go for salted. And to be honest, I'm generally a vaguely healthy person, but I'm just as big as possible and with some kind of cold 7-Up. Mm. <laughs> That's the first time we've had a 7-Up on here. That's good. Yeah, heavy on the ice. I'm actually going to go to the cinema tomorrow. I've been waiting, intentionally not watching it, to see Sound of Metal. I thought it was going to be Amazing. that, yeah. Yeah, You're yeah. You're in for such a treat, you really are. Yeah, well, particularly what with our sound design chat and things, I thought it would be mm. a great one to wait it out for. You're in for a real treat. The film's excellent. So, Anil, enjoy Sound of Metal. Thank you for picking Taste of Cherry, NFT1, BFI South Bank. We'll look out for you in row F. The <laughs> <laughs> screenings to come. Yeah, and I eat the popcorn in a quiet, respectful way. All right. So I'm not that guy, don't worry. Anil, thank you so much for talking with us on This Is My Cinema. It's been a great pleasure, thanks. Great talking with Anil and also it's been so long since I've been at the BFI South Bank so him just really outlining all of the banks, all of the rows, all of the seats, the specifics and I was laughing in my head about how he had such a specific seat and then you chipped in with your own very specific row so... <laughs> 
really well, enjoyed that. Some of us hardcore BFI South Bank attendees have a specific <laughs> seat in each of the three screens that we go for. So maybe on future episodes, I'll let the listeners know <laughs> what the other seats are. But it was so great, Anil, almost wrong footing us, mentioning more mainstream films, and then there'd be a left field turn when he's saying mm-hmm. Heat, Dog Day Afternoon, mainstream movies, and then Apis Kiristami's Taste of Cherry. Yes. As, as his pick. Also, tree of life twice i mean that is hardcore it really is i can't imagine anybody wanting to see that film twice let alone at the cinema (laughs) (laughs) well yes thanks again to anil for speaking with us and listeners make sure you subscribe to the show and check back in our feed for even more cinema stories you might have missed we'll be back next week with another great guest who's navigated their way through the concession stand and is about to take their seat in the cinema we'll see you then bye This is My Cinema is a Little Dot Studios production for Biffa. The show is hosted by Rihanna Dillon and Michael Leader. It's produced by Jake Cunningham, Ellie Aitken and Harold McShiel. And we're edited by Content is Queen. 